Welcome to Retirementals, a podcast that dives headfirst into the issues facing the financial sector at the intersection of investment, technology and financial advice. Hosted by Abraham Okasanya, you can expect raw honesty, critical analysis and energetic interviews. Here is your host, Abraham Okasanya. Okay, hello and welcome to Retirementals. It's great to have you all here today. I am really, really excited about my guest today. David Jones is Vice President and Head of UK and Highland Advisor Group at Dimensional. I have known David for best part of a decade now. He's a veteran and you know of our industry, really, really um, experienced. Um, colleague, I should call him, if I dare say so, experienced friend in the industry. Um, David, welcome to Retirementals. Thank you, Abraham. I'm delighted to join you this afternoon. I am really excited about our conversation today, as I was saying to you before, uh, before we went live. Um, you know, but let me try and curtail my excitement a little bit. So for the purpose of um, our audience and those who may not know who you are, Tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey um, to, to where you are today. Oh, uh, well, thank you. Um, sometimes when I'm asked this question and you, you think about, well, how did I get to where I am today? Because if, if you were looking forwards in time, you, you could have never have predicted it. But when you look backwards, you go, oh, well, all of these things that I did actually made sense in retrospect because... I was I was an academic. I, I was doing my PhD at university back in the in the eighties. And okay, that, I didn't know that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go on. Sorry. So I well I I was working away in in London, and I ran out of money, and uh, out of desperation, uh, I, I had to start work. Uh, so I started work uh, in advertising, uh, selling advertising space. And it was was not a great job, a horrible job, really. But it taught me uh, a lot about selling in a very short space of time. And then I moved on to a nicer job selling advertising. And then I moved into a job in in recruitment, which was really interesting. So I re- uh, that was a fascinating uh, role, actually. And from recruitment, uh, I went. I was going to sort out my uh, pension, and I, I met an advisor. And um, we got on really well. Uh, and a couple of days later, he called me up and offered me a job uh, to come and, and uh, actually be the general manager of, uh, of the business that he was running because he classically, you know, he was struggling to both advise clients and, and run the business. So that's how I, I originally got into, into financial services and um, had 60, 16 years before I joined Dimensional. So some of that time I was in, in partnership with a, a guy in Wimbledon. Uh, learned a huge, a guy called John Sheffield, learned a huge amount from, from him, both about running businesses, but also just basic stuff like time value of money calculations, which I still, I still value to this day that you know, I, I, was, I was taught how to use a financial calculator, in, especially in client meetings. But eventually uh, I went out on my own and um, and it was during that period when I was running my own business that I, I first was introduced to Dimensional and um, I thought this, this was really the answer to a lot of the frustrations that I had had 
as an advisor trying to find a robust investment uh, proposition for my clients. And uh, the way that it happened, I was, you're probably familiar with Mark Hebner of uh, IFA.com. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Very well known uh, website. And I've met Mark a number of times now. And we, we often joke that Mark actually changed my life because uh, I got hold of a copy of his book and I remember it arriving. Um, and my, my wife said, don't, don't start reading that book now, eat dinner. And then I picked up the book after dinner and, and I, I read this book and it, and it really described all of the, the frustrations that I had. You know, why, why was this active investment proposition not working the way that I thought it should? And what was an alternative? And really set out uh, a lot of essentially what was dimensional uh, work, but in a, in a very sort of contained uh, format. And about four o'clock in the in the morning, my wife came downstairs and said, right, "What are you doing? Are you, are, you, are you ever coming to bed?" And I basically read the book in the course of one night uh, and thought, that, "Absolutely, this is this is the way that I want to invest my clients' money, uh, my money." Um, and so I started uh, reaching out to Dimensional, um, did a lot of due diligence. <laughs> because I'd had so many uh, false starts before with other things that looked great and, and didn't turn out to be so great. I think they called me their most annoying client <laughs> because I really did sort of have the drains up in, in, in terms of questioning the approach. But ultimately, the, the great thing about it was there was always an answer and it wasn't just a made up answer. There was, it was you know, backed up by evidence and uh, theory, empirical data. And it just made so much sense. And, and eventually I started using Dimensional. And uh, after about three years, an opportunity came up to join as a regional director back when we were a very small team. And that was 2009. The rest, they say, is history. That's incredible. So what is that? I'm trying to do the maths in my head. That's what, nearly 15 years at Dimensional? No, nearly, yeah, nearly 13, actually. 13 years, 13 yeah. So, so you, you sold the practice, you sold the business, and then went on to, to work for, for Dimensional. That's correct, yes. That's, that's incredible. So, obviously, I came across you and Dimensional, um, you know, I think about nine years ago, maybe, maybe eight years ago, something like that, you know, when I was um, setting out, um, you know, Finalytic, uh, my business yes. at the time. And, you know, people talk, you talked about how reading Mark's book changed your life. Mm -hmm. In a sense, walking into Dimensional's office some, I don't know, seven, eight years ago changed my life. Um, you know, because I remember sitting on this, you know, in this room with David Swanick um, at the time. And he was taking... I, heard of Dimensional and, you know, of course, was really keen on the investment approach. You know, I'd been a convert to, to passive investment at that time, but it, then again, Dimensional popped up on my radar. And so I thought, actually, I'm working. And that's how I met David and, and then, um, you know, met you and, and the rest is history. So, again, I know that many of our, our um, audience will be familiar with who Dimensional is, but 
in case they're not, you know, and at the time, I still do think today the, that dimensional is the is one of the, if not the best kept secret in financial services. You know, you got this incredible um, track record of 40 years of managing investment for clients using data and evidence. But, you know, I would say vast majority of um, retail investors never heard of you guys. So mm. tell us a little bit about, um, you know, this, this dare I say, um, enigma that is dimensional. Well, we're, we, we don't try to be an enigma, <laughs> but I think you probably said it well because we never set out to, to work with retail investors. And so you know, when, when David Booth and his, his partners originally started Dimensional 40 years ago uh, this year, you know, they, they were really thought of it as an institutional uh, business. They were offering specific solutions at that time when they started. It was a, it was a small cap uh, fund. Uh, and we won't get into all the, the yeah. details of that, but it, it was really you know, bringing those solutions to institutional investors. And it was an advisor uh, uh, called Darren Wheeler who recognized um, how transformational that could be in, in, uh, as an approach working with his clients. And he, uh, he talked dimensional into letting him as an advisor uh, use uh, funds and saw an opportunity to take that message to other like-minded advisors. So that was from 1989, 1990, and that was really the start of the advisor business. But it was, we were always very clear that we, we placed sort of the, the advisor essentially in, in that process. We, we think that the, um, you know, there's a huge amount of, of value that advisors uh, offer. And you know, we, we work very hard to support advisors in the work that they they do so we tend to make less noise as it were about about dimensional itself and, and we try to work with uh, advisors who, who recognize what we're trying to do understand uh, how we set about managing uh, money why we take the decisions that we make what informs those decisions and of course we rely heavily on the the academic work and um it, it, interestingly, you mentioned the PhD, my second PhD, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, since coming back to work on that, I've really appreciated so much more about the, the, the scientific method uh, and how, how that informs what we do. You know, it, it, we, we have theory and we have evidence and you, you have ideas and you test those ideas uh, with data and, uh, and then you, you try and see if there's anything meaningful in that and then you publish your results and then people have at it. And if it survives, you know, lots of peer review and, and people really testing the validity of those ideas, then you think there's probably something there that you can, that you can do something with. And even, even if you've established that there might be some sort of theoretical basis for, for you know, an effect that you observe, and it could be a premium that, that you observe, it still doesn't mean that you can implement it in the real world. So I, I think what Dimensional has done somewhat uniquely, not completely uniquely, but somewhat uniquely, is being able to marry that, uh, the working with the, the finest academic minds, but then finding uh, the implementation, the, the commercial application of those ideas. So I sometimes uh, use the analogy uh, a bit like if you go to Cambridge or Oxford and, and, and on the outskirts of the city, you've got a science park. Well, the science park is there to work closely with the theoretical scientists who have coming up with really interesting things. And then they go, okay, so if we, if we apply 
you know the right uh, environment if we if we give them access to funding ca uh, you know venture capital and we try and bring these ideas to market and i think dimensional is a little bit like that in terms of the the, the finance world we see, we see lots of research uh, and that research really in many respects is public domain you know, people are publishing papers all the time uh, um, our research department is is looking at those papers and they see something interesting and they'll try and replicate the results they'll you know do out of sample testing and then they'll see if there's a, you know a way that you can use the research in order to improve the outcomes uh, for clients and so a huge amount of work that goes on behind the scenes take you know taking ideas testing them to destruction seeing if you can put them into a, a, an investable strategy for clients that, that will, will make sense and deliver it cost-effectively. Now a word from our sponsor. Nikki Heating Jones is the Managing Director and the Chief Investment Officer at Betafolio, the high-tech, low-cost, discretionary model portfolio manager. There are many flat-fee, retainer-based uh, model portfolio services out there um why is bitfolio pioneering this approach i think we're more than a flat fee model portfolio service we're a true investment partner we're offering a full investment service to advisors and, and taking it to a, a deeper level we don't just want to push a button and send an investment template we're we're building technology and processes so that we can support advisors at the individual client level with client portfolios on real practical issues like cash management and decumulation and and you know lots of other areas that are associated with actually implementing a financial plan rather than just providing a a model portfolio so that's where i see us as as being pioneering and perhaps taking the mps product to a to a new new level thank you very much nikki let's let's move on so maybe we'll come back to dimension a little bit but i want to get further into into your story and some of the work that you've done so so as if the uh, first stab at your phd wasn't mm -hmm. enough and by the way i'm interested in what the first one was but but you went back to do a second <laughs> a second attempt at you know the, the phd and this time you are looking at the value of advice tell us a little bit um about give us a little bit of a background um to to, to that yeah absolutely so in the interest of full disclosure that i i, I didn't finish the first one because i ran out of cash um, <laughs> but that 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 one was on american foreign policy around the, uh, the vietnam war and the uh, 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 but anyway, long, long since in the past. But the second time around, there was a question that was really nagging away at me. Uh, one, I I was interested to go back and and do more academic work. Uh, I I enjoyed doing it, and I thought that this would be interesting. But uh, you can't really do that. You don't subject yourself to a PhD unless there's there's something that's really nagging away at you. So it becomes the itch that you just can't uh, scratch and and it was this question about the the value of uh, of advice or the value of financial planning and the extent to which um going back to my earlier comment you know i really do believe that 
the vast majority of people on the planet would be better off by putting in place a, a, a financial plan, you know, having an idea of what their goals are uh, and a structured process by which they could fund them and, and ultimately achieve them. So one of the things I, you know, this is going back sort of about 25 years, but I would really notice about people is provided they have enough. So, you know, there is a, a case where there are people who, who really are making heartbreaking trade-offs with their money as to, can I eat this week? Can I heat my house? Can I feed, feed my kids? Th these kind of things. And they are acutely aware of, of the money that they have or, or don't have. But provided people have enough, especially in sort of a, a you know, a, a very well-off country like the UK or, or similar, they, they're kind of unconscious around their money. And they, they don't really think about it in the way that I think they should. So I developed this sort of four question test of, of money consciousness very, very quickly. And I think I did it at your, at your Science of Retirement conference where we had the whole room yes. sort of their hands up and then we tested, you know, did, did, did people know how much money they had in their That's pockets or, right <laughs> or how much they spent last month? And I think we, we got a room of, 400 people down to one one individual which is about the sort of normal odds that you know vast majority of people really can't tell you what they spent last month or how much money they've, they've got on them so uh, I've always felt that actually bringing the, the power of advice to more broadly to society would be would be so beneficial but the challenge is how, how do you get people to understand that, that advice is actually valuable and so these, these were all questions that were really sort of nagging away at me. And then, and then of course, you add into that uh, problem is, well, advice is, uh, it, there is value to it, but also what should you pay for it and how should you pay for it? Uh, because again, there's a sort of huge discrepancy in you know, what people think uh, they should pay uh, and what advisors actually will, will need in terms of, you know, Actually, we're not. <laughs> we need this in order to run a, a long-term uh, business uh, in the right way, and so that's that's where it started, uh, really. And, and when you get into a PhD, you'll come in with an idea, and everybody knows that what will happen as you start to read is you'll you'll evolve different uh, thought processes around it. But ultimately, you have to get to a theory. What's my theory? Uh, and then gather data and, and test whether that theory. Um, it comes true so my the work that i'm doing is I'm, I'm trying to find a more unified way of expressing where where the value of advice is so there's there's quite a lot of academic work that is done in terms of uh evaluating the let's say the economic outcome of advice so if you take two populations you have a population that isn't advised you have a population that is and you can measure portfolio outcomes as a result of advice and conclude that actually the advised population had better economic outcomes, then you, you say, well, we conclude that advice is, is a good thing. And then you'll have people who say, yes, that, that is true, but then uh, you, you have to throw in the sort of uh, information asymmetry, uh, skewed incentives around uh, how people historically have being paid commissions still are in other parts of the world and so other academics will come down this on the side of saying no actually advice isn't valuable it costs people more than more than it's it's worth but 
if you look at the whole, the totality of a, a, of a proposition, and I've tried to express this in a, in a formula in some respects and say, well, what is it? What, what would you put in, in the formula? Uh, and so the first thing is you'd say knowledge. Uh, so advisors spend a lot of time accumulating what we'd like to think is relevant knowledge. And that, might, that could be knowledge about tax or estate planning or uh, asset allocation or investment selection. And, but it isn't knowledge for its own sake. So you could say in the equation, we'd have capital K and then a little a, say, well, it's the A is for applied knowledge. So KA. So, right. so it's the understanding of a client's unique situation, their goals, their circumstances, the resources that they have. And so you're, you're trying to bring your knowledge to bear on that person's situation. But then you, you add the other part of it, which is the organizational aspects. So we know um, if you're going to get your house remodeled or you're going to do certain things to your car, you know that uh, you could do them yourself. You could actually acquire the knowledge. But then there's also the, the organization around that knowledge where you might not have the right tools. You know, the professional turns up and they've got all the, all the right kit. You don't have to go down to home base and buy amateur versions of the same kit. They, they've got all the tools, they've got everything works and they've got the right structure and organization. So it's easier for them to apply their knowledge because they've got the structure to do it in. Same with, with financial services. Yes, you could do it yourself. It's gonna take you a long time to acquire the knowledge, but then you've got to be able to put it into some kind of framework. And so the organizational aspects, very, very important in terms of the, the, the value of advice. Then you, you can add on another aspect, which is, uh, something that's talked so much more about now. It's always been part of the advisor's remit, which is the behavioral management. And so now you, you can read the literature on all the behavioral biases, the things that we're none of us immune to in terms of how we, how we respond to various challenges that, that we have and being able to manage behavior, particularly around money, particularly when things are, let's say, volatile in the market. And so there is a value to somebody being able to stop you uh, harming, you know, self-harming, I think, let's put it that way. And so let's say that those, you know, the KA plus O plus B, small M behavior management, you put that in the brackets and say, actually, there's another aspect to this. And I call it the exponential, which is R. So, the, so you raise that to the power of relationship. Okay. Now that's, that's, uh, a sort of a, a way that I encapsulate what that, that work is. Of course, you then have to take it to another level using econometric factors and, and willingness to pay and all the rest of it. But essentially what, I, what I'm trying to look is saying, you've got work that's been done on all of these different aspects of it discreetly, but is there a way that we can pull all that together and actually equate uh, where, where is the value of advice and because the other side of value is, is price and pe people's willingness to pay the price in order to, to determine value. And then, of course, you add in the time varying nature of people's assessment of whether things are valuable because it's an intensely subjective uh, thing. And that, that's where the challenge lies in really trying to dig into uh, uh, advice is valuable. So, so hypothesis. Ad advice being advised is a good thing 
it, but it's way more than just the narrow definition of an economic outcome. There's, there's the whole range of things that you can put into the experience. Question then arises, well, how, how do you evaluate that? And uh, there's some really interesting uh, statistical techniques, which I'm, your listeners will be hugely relieved I'm not going to go into. Um, but there, there is actually a way um, of sort of uh, of evaluating all the constituent parts and, and, and how people put different weightings on the importance of the different parts of, of that. So ultimately, it'll be trying to uh, test whether uh, when people sort of evaluate different parts of an advice proposition, uh, we, we can arrive at, yes, there is a there is a value to that that you could that you could compute. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of thinking up interesting uh, tests and interesting things for people to do in, in evaluating. Uh, I, I find this really incredible. And I think that the thing for me is that as you talk through this, at some point I thought to myself, oh, we're in a classroom, right? Because you came up with the formula, which I, I you know, I'm, I, I, I'm sort of acro, acro, what's the word? Acronomizing it. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, you know it's what um, cob as in K, K knowledge yeah. um, O um, and and the behavioural element. Uh, yeah. So so I'm thinking to myself, and then you multiply by the relationship. So I'm thinking to myself, is the I get the value of this, which is to be able to um, you know put some sort of value for an individual. Mm. Um, on on the advice or the financial planning that they're about to receive so mm -hmm. is it that ultimately we get to um a way where you can individualize this and you can say well you know if you take k plus o plus b based on your um level of wealth and preparedness to pay for advice and what it might cost mm -hmm. actually there is value in it for for you yeah. whereas you might take somebody else maybe a younger person um i don't know i'm making this up and do is in uni or college or whatever and you know when you add the k and o and b together and you sum this up versus what they're going to pay for it um maybe there isn't maybe there isn't value there is that yeah. is that where we get to? yeah i mean that's that's yeah definitely because you know the, the, people's assessment of what is valuable is intensely personal to them isn't it um, yeah. but, um and of course that that's skewed by all sorts of different uh, different things so you know take a very simple example you know if you if you look at people's choices of wristwatch now, essentially, the wristwatch does exactly the same thing. So why would you pay several thousand for a watch when a watch does the same thing? And by the way, Swatch probably made the, the mechanism that sits inside your, your expensive watch. Because there's actually so many things wrapped up in that, that decision around uh, co uh, the communication of status and wealth and, uh, and how you feel about yourself, however you, you want other people to look at you. So you, you, you're making a very personal decision and trade-off between the importance of, of an expensive timepiece against uh, another timepiece that is very functional and costs a fraction of that, and, uh, but does exactly the same 
same job. And so, again, you know, when you're applying that to advice, some of the things that I'm thinking about at the moment is, uh, are you able to sort of um, see whether there's, there's certain thresholds that people reach where it goes beyond what you'd imagine your personal competence and comfort right. would be, as opposed to you, you, you step beyond that. So uh, something I was thinking of was in terms of, let's say that uh, you, you uh, assess people's attitude to a windfall. So they, they get a certain amount of money as a, as a windfall. So <laughs> let's, let's say for the purpose of this thought experiment, you go into your WH Smith and on a, on a whim, you pick out off a scratch card and you walk out and you, you scratch off and you go, oh, I've won. So let's say take an amount of money. I've won a hundred pounds. Okay. So if you said to somebody, okay, hundred pounds, they're probably not thinking I've got to go and get some financial advice <laughs> to do with this hundred pounds. You know, and they probably got in their head, well, let's go and have a nice meal out. You know, yeah. so that money will equate to something in their mind. So you could you could take it to a point of saying, what if you 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 got ten thousand? And for somebody that might mean that is so beyond my comfort of any lump sum of money I've ever had. I probably need to ask somebody what to do with it. Now it may not be formally in terms of financial advisor but it, it could well be i need to speak to my dad or i need to speak to somebody hey i've got this ten thousand pounds what should i do <laughs> now for uh, a wealthier person that you know that just gets integrated within their in their overall plan and it, it, it and it doesn't really make a difference well what about a hundred thousand oh now you're getting into a whole different level where people are saying yeah, I've got to probably do something significant with this. Well, maybe I could pay off my mortgage or, you know, I could start to put a, a significant amount away as, as savings. I, I keep up a little bit to enjoy, but I've got to do something with this money. And at that, do you need advice at that level? Hmm. Do we take you on to, to the next level, the next level? Next? So I, I think one of the things that'd be really interesting to do is to, to advise, sort of test where those thresholds are. Uh, another threshold, for example, comes around complexity if somebody is suddenly asked to complete a tax return yeah. who's never had to do Now, you and I have probably been online, done our tax returns, you know, it takes five minutes. The, the, I, compared, I guess you don't do yours on the 30th of January. So. <laughs> um, but or you contrast that because, uh, you know, for example, with a, a US tax return, which is a horrendous experience. Yeah. So again you maybe you hit a barrier of complexity and you go actually at this point what i would pay somebody to take that problem away is 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 really worth it and so int be interesting to test <coughs> where the, where those thresholds might sit i i suspect abraham we've probably tested your your listeners patience enough <laughs> this subject uh, uh, and we should probably move on all right, agreed. Okay, so so let's move on then. I know that you've done um, a lot of thinking around the, the psychology of happiness in retirement, mm -hmm. and I suspect that you know during our conversation, um, this came by or you know as you were approaching the age of of sixty, which is uh, an incredible milestone. So talk talk us through how you. Um, you know, how you now approach and think about this subject of how do we find um, happiness in, in retirement? That, that's, that's such a great question uh, because 
uh, I think lots of people have, have seen examples of, you know, whether it's relations or friends, people who they know who've, uh, who've retired and have gone downhill really quickly mm. after retirement. And, uh, uh, and I think there's, there's, there's a real issue with people where their, their whole identity is wrapped up in the identity that they had when they were working. And then when that identity is taken away, they really don't know who they are anymore and their, their lives lack structure. Uh, in a sense, they, they, their lives lack meaning. And so I think as human beings, we've got certain problems in life that we, you know, we have to solve. Uh, for example, we, we, you know, if we, if we want a partner in life, then we have to, you know, put some effort into finding the right partner in life. And that doesn't always work out. And sometimes, you know, people have to find other partners in life, but you know, that ultimately uh, to be, they, they say to be happy, you know, be, be with the right person. And, and certainly, you know, going into retirement, one of the things that uh, I, I talked to my wife about was that, Hey, you know, this, this whole period of, of lockdown where we've, we've essentially, you know, it's been the two of us together for a, for a long period of time. I mean, it really is points out to us that, yeah, absolutely. We can live perfectly happily together. And if, the, if I was retired, yeah, this, this really wasn't, uh, wasn't an issue. We didn't drive our crazy. We didn't, no, we, we didn't, <laughs> we, uh, we, we coexisted perfectly happily. Um, and the second thing is, which comes more and more is a sense of purpose. I, I think that ultimately, you know, we, we derive a, a lot of meaning, a lot of purpose from the work that we do, but it, it goes beyond that. And for me, um, part of the, 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 the attraction of the, the PhD is that there is a purpose which is around learning. Mm. So I, I believe that as, as human beings, we are all learning entities. We're, we're constantly learning as we go through life. And that in and itself has has meaning um, and then you can apply that meaning in a more formal sense and say well i'm doing a, a formal piece of of study and and so but even if i wasn't i would certainly be um using the time uh, to to learn uh, about all the sorts of different things that, are, that i'm interested in uh, and that i think is 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 the importance of having that sense of meaning and and, and the sense of uh, of purpose and then uh, often you know, it's to apply that in the in the service of others um, where we, you know you can really derive a lot of meaning your uh, your audience uh, uh, advisors know that only too well uh, you know the, they are motivated to serve other people to help those people get a better outcome in, in their lives uh, I think that's been the better part of my you know the last 40 years professionally um, has been motivated to try and help people in, in whatever aspect whether it's working in recruitment, trying to help people get a good job or um, working in uh, financial services, trying to help people retire in comfort or plan for their kids' education, whatever, whatever the outcomes were, um, it was all about doing the best job you could to uh, see they got the outcome they wanted. So having a great partner um, that, you can, that you can live with happily, um, um, Purpose, a sense of purpose, um, and 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 um, you know, in service of others, right? Yeah. And then, and then you add in, uh, obviously, you know, as you get older, one of the things that you know a lot of people neglect um, 
is their is their fitness and their, their physical fitness uh, i've always been very active in in sports so i, I so i i continue to stay active uh, uh, in a sporting way uh, uh be care you know be careful with nutrition and diet you know these these things have uh, a huge impact on you so you know, I, th I think the, the idea is not just to, you know, you want to live a long life, but you also want to live a, a long, healthy uh, life so that you can, you, you can enjoy it. And so there are certain activities that I, I do now um, uh, you know, where, yes, uh, I might have in the, in the past run lots of miles and I, I do less of that now because I know that it has a kind of a problematic impact on my knees, whereas cycling, rowing, etc., not a problem swimming not a problem so um you you, you adapt uh, uh to your you know the, ch the changes in your your physical um uh, health and um uh, but that is that is the outcome you want long healthy life uh you want to make sure that you've you've got the finance uh, the resources to to maintain that uh, th through the whole of your life that's that's what it's all about so Good stuff. And then, so I know you're, a, you're an avid reader. So what is it that you've been reading recently? Um, what does that look like? <laughs> it, candidly, uh, Abraham, that's, it, it's a lot of academic papers. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's, you know, the Journal of Wealth Management, Journal of Finance, Journal of Financial Planning. Um, that's really uh, a lot of uh, of what I've been reading. Um, last couple of books, uh, yeah. There's, <laughs> if I was to pull them off my bookshelf, they would be academic tests, uh, uh, academic uh, texts, uh, like introduction to econometrics and things like that. So, <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah it's, it's it's not really the the one that you want on your bedside table. Well, maybe you do because it will put you instantaneously. <laughs> No, this has been um, an incredibly valuable conversation, David. Just learning um, about your journey, nearly a little bit about dimensional, and you know some of the stuff that you've been working on and thinking. So, um, you know, on that note, I am going to say, David, thank you for your time, for your insight, and uh, you know, for the good work you do. Thank you very much, Abraham. It's been a pleasure as always. I'll be remiss if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together, led by my producer, Hannah Dickinson. Thank you, thank you very much, guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline App, the retirement planning software, and Bitfolio, the high-tech, low-cost, flat-fee model portfolio manager. And to you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Abraham on Money. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.